Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Thanks everyone for tuning back in to Book Rising, the podcast of the Radical Books Collective. I'm Meg Ehrenberg, host of the Radical Publishing Futures series, and today I'm here with Margot Atwell, current executive director and publisher at Feminist Press, the pioneering nonprofit press committed to feminist social justice publishing and based at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Feminist Press was founded in 1970 by the feminist scholar, educator, and movement leader Florence Howe and has been publishing feminist literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and translations, and the interdisciplinary academic journal Women's Studies Quarterly for over 50 years. Margot Atwell is a writer, editor, publisher, and community funding expert. And before taking on the executive director role at Feminist Press just over a year ago, she directed publishing at Kickstarter and also worked previously at the independent publisher Beaufort Books and founded and ran the Micropress Gut Punch. She is also the co-author of The Insider's Guide to Book Publishing from Beaufort Books and Derby Life, a crash course in the incredible sport of roller derby from Gut Punch Press. Um, welcome to Book Rising, Margot. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm I'm sort of tempted to start by asking you whether roller derby was good prep for, for running a feminist press. <laughs> uh, it was actually. Um, so uh, Gotham Roller Derby is one of the founding leagues in the modern sport of roller derby, which restarted back in 2001. Um, and in contrast to the original sport of roller derby, which went through a variety of things, but was owned by an individual, um, the modern sport of roller derby was restarted by a bunch of women um, and feminists uh, in Austin, Texas and elsewhere. And um, so Gotham Roller Derby was a um, was a feminist volunteer run organization that I was part of for 15 years. And uh, I learned so much because everything was like by us for us. Uh, so I learned about publicity. I learned about finance. I was the treasurer of the board of directors for four years and helped keep the pre- uh, keep the league steady um, during the pandemic. Um, and I also just learned how to build consensus, get people's buy-in, uh, deal with different perspectives, and um, you know, pull everyone together to work towards a common cause. Uh, so that has been great preparation for running a feminist press. That's awesome. Um... I mean, were you doing all of this while also doing publishing? Like, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to, to publishing, either from that those roles in, in Roller Derby or alongside? Yeah. Um, so I was always, always interested in publishing. Um, as soon as I realized that there was someone between writer and reader, two roles I already uh, inhabited, um, but that, that there was someone between them and that was a job that often had health insurance attached, uh, I realized that that was what I wanted to do. Um, And I was part of literary magazines in high school and co-founded one in college. Um, And right after college, I was trying to get work in book publishing, which is really challenging. Um, But I did eventually land in um, at a literary agency and then an independent press. Um, And all of the roller derby 
stuff I did, that was a hobby that becomes became sort of an extra job uh, while I was working full-time at Beaufort. Um, and at one point I was doing 10 hours a week of skating, 10 or 20 hours a week of publicity work for Gotham, 40 plus hours a week of work for Beaufort. And um, I also launched and, and ran a, um, a roller derby website um, with a few other people. So I didn't sleep much back then. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of free time built into that schedule. Um, wow. Um, so, I mean, I know you're relatively new to this role at Feminist Press, but could you also share some of the history of how Feminist Press came into being? Absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, uh, in 1970, Florence Howe, who was a professor, was not able to find um, enough women writers whose works were in print to teach in her courses. And she felt like that was a terrible oversight. Uh, and the you know, minimal amount of books that were published often went out of print quickly because they weren't supported properly by publishers. So she started Feminist Press to publish works by women um, and, you know, diversify the canon, the literary canon, uh, with an eye towards education. Um, and she also had a strong vision of doing feminist recovery work, recovering and republishing books um, by writers who were out of print, such as like Zora Neale Hurston, that kind of thing. Um, so feminist press has always, from the very beginning, had uh, an activist mission um, and been very connected to uh, feminist scholarship, feminist movement building, um, and diversifying the publishing landscape. That's That's been our whole reason for being for over 50 years. Yeah, um, I was actually gonna ask you specifically about that sort of early relationship between how specifically, but maybe also later um, publishers at the press sort of between her curriculum building work at Goucher College originally and um, and then later at SUNY um, uh, and the publishing work at the Feminist Press. Like the two, as you say, were very linked right at the beginning. Um, and I, you know, I hasten to say there's been some improvement in gender representation like in curricula in the intervening decades, but I'm I'm still curious to know like what the relationship, what the ongoing relationship is now between Feminist Press and, and CUNY Graduate Center and whether or not there's still a kind of symbiosis between the academic program and the and the publishing work. Yeah, um, I think that's a really big area to explore. Uh, so Florence Howe was one of the early um, and passionate supporters of the women's studies and gender studies programs. Um, and WSQ, um, which is the, the current name for Women's Studies Quarterly, was originally a newsletter just talking about where there were women's studies programs. Um, and eventually over time that became a, a journal. Yeah, I, both both Feminist Press and WSQ were founded in service of building these programs and, you know, driving sort of like feminist analysis forward, feminist thinking forward. Uh, and we have, because of that, had these long relationships with originally Goucher and then we were in Long Island and for the past couple decades um, have been 
uh, working out of the CUNY Graduate Center and we have a, a partnership with them. Um, I think it's most clear um, in WSQ, which is um, we have collaborators within the Graduate Center um, from the, the Human Center for Humanities and uh, Women's Studies Department. Um, but our two new editors are also CUNY professors from other schools. And um, we have other ways that we collaborate with uh, with CUNY as well. And I think it's something that I'm still trying to understand um, the relationship and also the possibilities, especially given that uh, the pandemic has changed so many things about how in person, being in person works and how um, universities work and what their priorities and resources are. Um, for example, one of our best-selling um, and most prominent books over the past few years was Taste Like War by Grace Cho, who's also a CUNY professor. Um, so we do have strong ties into CUNY and, um, and are working to expand that. Um, and upcoming for, uh, well, this month actually, and a couple months from now, we're publishing um, an anthology of the Kessler lectures from CLAGS, uh, which is a CUNY department. Um, uh, so we're publishing, I think the most recent 20 years worth of lectures in August. And then in November, we're republishing Queer Ideas, which was published about 20 years ago. It was the previous set. Um, and the new uh, head of CLAGS is Matt Brim, who used to be a WSQ uh, editor. So uh, we have all of these various amazing ties and relationships with CUNY and the Graduate Center specifically. Yeah, I was going to, um, I mean, since you brought up the, the pandemic and how that's sort of shifted the landscape on university campuses, um, but I feel like, you know, in our conversations in the series with small publishers, it's changed the publishing landscape as well in a lot of ways, um, and a lot of the um, publishers we've talked to have talked about the importance of cultivating community, both with readers and with, with booksellers, particularly in this moment and in the wake of um, lockdowns and so forth. Um, so I was just you know, curious if you could speak to the feminist press readership sort of outside the, the education piece, or maybe it's, I'm sure that it's um, an overlapping readership or a, or a complex readership, but um, you know, whether you've been able to maintain community or what efforts have been underway to sort of build community in these, in this sort of rocky pandemic period. Absolutely. Uh, community is really at the heart of what Feminist Press does. And I think that's always been true. Um, one of Florence Howe's aims was uh, not just to publish these books, but also to train feminists to be editors um, who could then move throughout the industry and bring that mission onward. Um, and the acquisitions process has always been very collaborative. So even how we take a book on is, you know, starts from a community or a conversation. Um, Feminist Press has readers who have been following us, uh, for years or even decades. A lot of people discover our books in, uh, university or graduate school and, um, and then, understand that we have such a rich backlist um, of these like foundational books, but also are publishing, I think really boundary pushing new work. 
Um, we're constantly looking for whose voices are not being heard and represented and what kind of really like nuanced, authentic um, positions, stories, ideas can we help to get out there. Um, uh, in terms of how we've connected with our reader uh, readership, um, it was really challenging during the pandemic, which sorry, during, during the acute phase of the pandemic, we are still in a pandemic. Uh, I ha always have to correct that when I, when I do shorthand. Um, I came on in the sort of more recent, like things are awkwardly opening back up, but none of us are sure how to keep ourselves and others safe period. Um, but I did miss the really intense lockdown and no events are happening and everyone's scrambling to discover how to be in the new world period mm -hmm. uh, at feminist press. Um, I think the press had been set up really, really well for adapting to, to that moment. Um, the previous strategic plan, which launched in 2019 and was, you know, built out by the previous executive director, Jamia Wilson and the board and the staff, um, that plan really focused on building up online visibility, um, increasing our social media channels, um, and engaging more broadly with people there, um, improving our website, uh, and things like that. So the press was able to pivot quite quickly to these online sales, um, and ways of connecting with community. Um, yeah. It's something that as I'm doing uh, or working on our next strategic plan is front and center for me because the mission of the feminist press is to publish books that ignite movements and social transformation. Um, we lift up insurgent and marginalized voices from around the world to build a more just future. And because of that, I think community has to be at the heart of what we do because it's not enough to put a book out there. We have to understand who will read it, how will they find it and how will it grow and move outward from there? Um, you know, that sparking conversations piece is really crucial. So um, I think all of publishing is in a little bit of a weird moment right now as Twitter faces a very uh, uncertain future and all of the social media platforms that, we kind of grudgingly got on like 15, 20 years ago, um, I guess 15, um, you know, they've all changed their algorithms. They've updated their business models um, and are really just like looking to extract value from these platforms um, and followings that they've built. And they've made it much, much harder to reach an audience and share a message, uh, especially without paying. And some publishers have the budgets to do that, but most independents don't. And I think it's really stark to realize that something like, uh, you know, your Twitter following that you've invested in building for maybe a decade can just disappear overnight. And so um, as I think about community, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, what meaningful touch points do we have with community? How can we connect with community authentically and impactfully rather than just, you know, 40,000 people follow us on this social channel and like a bunch of them heart our posts. Like what does meaningful connection look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was actually going to ask you about sort of publishing in the digital age. Um, and you've, you've spoken to a lot of that, um, particularly on the sort of reaching readers side. Um, 
uh, I'm I'm curious also about because it seems like feminist press is primarily still doing well. I should say you know is is primarily a print publisher, and I'm curious. I didn't see um, any sort of ebooks or digital publishing that you're currently doing, but it's also possible that I've overlooked this. Um, and I and I'm curious to hear you talk about how um, the press either before you were there or since since you've been there has been navigating those shifts as well. I mean, it's, it's interesting to talk to publishers because there's been um, some sort of different answers on, on the ways the pendulum is kind of shifting back and forth between demand for, uh, for digital titles versus print titles, but just um, curious how you've, you've navigated the, the, the digital age um, at Feminist Press. Yeah. Um, it's funny. So when I was at Kickstarter, I gave a talk, uh, it was five predictions for the futures of publishing. Uh, so like publishing 2025, this was 2019 or 2018. I had no idea. Um, and, uh, I think a couple of the predictions I made were that, um, publishers would, um, get more comfortable with technology and, um, uh, and also would connect more directly with readers. Um, also, publishing would move out of expensive city centers and diversify where it was based. Um, I had no idea the way in which that would come about much more quickly than I'd anticipated. Um, but I do feel like the pandemic forced everyone, but especially book publishers, to get comfortable with digital tools really, really fast in a way that I had seen quite a lot of resistance. And um, it's funny looking back at the early days of my career, which um, I started working in book publishing in 2005. So I was watching and running a publishing company as publishers were grappling with like, what are eBooks? Like, are these important? Should we invest in them? How do we price them? What you know, are they worth anything? And, um, you know, I had put some of our front list titles uh, into ebook format when I was at Beaufort um, back in like 2008 or so, um, but they didn't really do anything until um, right after the holidays, I think 2011, right beforehand, the price of e-readers dropped below $200 for the first time. Um, and that holiday season, a bunch of people got Kindles and other e-readers. And so within the month after that, you know, Christmas and other holiday season, I saw ebook sales skyrocket, like quadruple for us. Um, mm -hmm. So immediately once the mechanisms for reading in that way were more accessible, I saw that huge shift. Um, I think during that time, a lot of publishing and industry publications were like, oh no, ebooks are going to ruin everything, uh, which was a real possibility at that time that like maybe people wouldn't do paper anymore and you know people wouldn't value digital content and our entire business model would be ruined forever. We haven't seen people move away from paper that much. And in fact, I think there's been a return to paper as people have gotten a little tired um, of just looking at screens all the time. Um, but the way I think about it is that it's really important to have your books in as many formats and channels as possible because um, accessibility 
you know, audiobooks and ebooks are really, really important for accessibility um, for folks who uh, have difficulty with vision, um, folks who have a harder time reading on paper or, um, you know, just reading words at all. Um, so I think about just providing as many formats as possible as being really a key thing for accessibility. Um, we publish all of our front list titles in print and E, and I think at least the vast majority of our backlist that that we can digitize has been. Uh, we also, we tend to sell audiobook rights because as a pretty small publisher, we know that's not our area of expertise. So we'd rather um, find mostly like independent audiobook publishers to partner with because that is their area of expertise. They're good at that. Um, and we'd rather have another organization that is strong there partnering with us to get that book out in that format. Yeah. Um... I wonder if we could go back to something you mentioned in one of your earlier answers um, about community building. And you talked about how community is essential even to the acquisitions process. Um, and, and particularly as you've emphasized, right, Feminist Press's um, you know, major commitment is to marginalized voices, underrepresented perspectives, and these kind of things. And, and given, you know, uh that commitment to first-time authors, what have you, um, can you give us like a little more detail on what that uh, acquisition process or selection process for titles looks like? Like how does a book find its way into the feminist press catalog? Yeah, uh, there are a variety of ways that we get projects submitted to us. Um, but one of the ones that I'm most proud of is uh, we have open submissions. So anybody, whether they have an agent or not, can send us their manuscript and have it considered by the press. Um, when I started last year, we used to just have like rolling open submissions at all times and people would just email their submissions to uh, a Gmail inbox. That was not the most effective way to manage that process. And by the time I started, um, we were hundreds of submissions behind and our turnaround times were stretching to six months and beyond, which is not a great experience for anybody. So um, I worked with uh, our assistant editor, Nick Whitney, our editorial director, Lauren Hook, um, and our production coordinator, Rachel Page, mostly um, worked together to determine what would be the best submission process going forward, given that we all agreed that it was crucial to maintain that open submission policy um, so that people who have less access to uh, the traditional publishing world who are less able to get agents to represent them can still get their work to us and we can be considering and publishing, um, you know, those first time writers and people who just like have amazing things to say, but the industry has like historically not, not worked to give them that platform and publish their work. Um, so what we have now is a twice a year open call. Um, we just finished one at the end of July um, and we got, I think, over 400 submissions in that time. Um, and now we'll we'll go through them. We have a, a team of apprentices and some of our other folks on the editorial team. We'll look at all of those submissions and bring forward and share at our acquisitions meetings any of them that seem like a strong fit for what we do. Um, we have 
acquisitions meetings once or twice a month. Um, anyone at the press who is interested is invited to join those. Um, and we typically have, you know, our sales and marketing person there. Um, sometimes um, like our publicity person comes in and reads submissions and it's so valuable to have perspectives from as many people as possible when we are making a choice. Um, and I think also the types of questions people ask about a project or an author or whether something's a good fit for our list uh, are so key to making a strong decision. Um, and I think given that we're a publisher that does about 12 to 15 books a year, it's so key to get that early buy-in from everyone in the press. Um, and so typically we, you know, we have those meetings and discuss them, but we'll send the manuscript around to everyone on staff and be like, hey, this is a project that's really exciting to me for these reasons. I'd love to get any thoughts or questions you have. Um, and that can surface, you know, early enthusiasm or early questions or concerns about a project. I, I can imagine that builds a nice community within the staff of the press as well to have that kind of um, sort of intense uh, intense role in in the in the full publishing process. I think one of the most exciting things about working at an independent book publisher is that a lot of people, you know, there aren't silos between different departments. They're the way there might be at a much bigger place. Um, and so everyone is working really collaboratively on everything. And um, you know, that's not for everyone, but I think uh, so many people, probably almost everyone gets into book publishing because they love books and getting to see how projects come in and like what excites us about them makes everyone really good at doing their jobs to create the books and get them out into the world. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question that we've asked everyone who has come on uh, to the podcast. Um, given the, or some form of this question, <laughs> given the, the sort of outsized influence of of huge publishing conglomerates and corporate booksellers like Amazon, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble, what have you. Um, what in your own opinion would have to change for independent, radical, non-corporate publishing to thrive? That's something I think about a lot. Um, I, it's my whole job to figure out how to make an independent radical publisher thrive. Um, <laughs> I've been so impressed by the creativity, the ingenuity um, of independent presses, uh, how experimental people are, how they'll just take risks, um, both editorially and in the publishing process. That's so exciting and inspiring to me. Um, and so I think one of the things that's really important to me is building community um, with other independent radical publishers. Um, some things that I think will really help independent and radical publishers thrive is um, more direct relationships with readers and readers who think about where they're making their purchases and how they're supporting the organizations that do meaningful work in this space. Um, so for example, uh, we sell books directly from our website and we also sell them at independent bookstores on bookshop.org, um, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Um, 
but we make at least three times as much money when someone buys them from us directly. Um, we make more money when someone buys it from an indie bookstore than when they buy it from Amazon. So, um, and, and we're really invested in the success of indie bookstores because that's where a lot of people discover our books. And so someone who isn't following us might see one of our books that's been displayed uh, at the front of their local bookshop, pick it up and then be like, oh, wow, I like what they're doing. Maybe I'll check out more of their stuff. So to me that um, there's like an amazing symbiotic relationship between um, independent presses like ours and independent bookstores. And we've invested a lot in those relationships too. Um, I think it can be really challenging as an individual with limited funds under late stage extractive capitalism to put money into everything that you want to see thrive. And I think something like a book publisher can often seem way less immediate than something like, um, like a political cause or, um, you know, mutual aid in your local community or something like that. Uh, and I totally get that. Um, there are a lot of ways to support independent and radical presses that are not around buying books or donating, um, you know, checking out our books from the library, requesting them from the library, recommending them to a friend, writing reviews online, um, following us on social media and, you know, retweeting or reposting our stuff, coming out to our events. Um, like all of those things are so incredible. Um, they're ways for us to connect, to build visibility for our work. Um, and also those kinds of connections and, um, you know, moments of reader interaction uh, are really restorative. Um, like they really feed our souls because, mm -hmm. you know, we work so hard to make these books happen and we're working on them sometimes two or three or four years in advance of when anyone ever reads them. But then if we go to an event like the Brooklyn Book Festival and we're tabling and we see someone pick up something we've been working on for a couple of years and respond to it and get excited about it, or we see them, you know, they come over and like, oh my God, I read this book. I loved it. That is so nourishing to us. And I think that um, just keeping up our energy to keep doing the work day in and day out is really important too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, um, maybe you could tell us, well, you mentioned a couple of the projects that have come out of your relationship with CUNY. Um, you talked about the uh, collection of Kessler lectures and the republishing of the title Queer Ideas. Um, but I wonder if you had one or two other feminist titles on your list that you think we should all all of us listening to Book Rising should be reading right away. Oh, it depends on what what your interests are. Our our list, um, I think we have something like 500 titles still in print and new, new ones every month. Um, I can tell you about a couple of my early acquisitions that I'm very excited about. Um, one of them is called uh, Head Above Water. It's a a hybrid memoir by a Kuwaiti-Palestinian professor of English who was diagnosed with MS when she was a teenager and told she wouldn't live beyond 30. Um, and she had to find ways to make a life for herself, given this sometimes invisible illness um, and given, 
you know, this like very different outlook than most people have for their life. Uh, and she found, um, she found that she was really nourished and lifted up by stories and by community and especially, um, feminine and, and maternal community. Um, I got to listen to her, uh, do a talk last night. Um, it was a virtual event with Greenlight Bookstore. Um, her name is Shahad Al-Shamari, and she writes about disability in such a frank and thoughtful way. Um, it's neither, you know, the kind of inspiration porn that sometimes people who are disabled feel pushed to publish um, because that's, you know, the thing that sells. Um, but neither is it you know, completely hopeless. It it really is just such a thoughtful, um, engaging memoir that I would really encourage everyone to pick that one up. Um, Say the title one more time. It's Head Above Water. Head Above um, Water. And that's available now. Um, and another book that Feminist Press is publishing in October that I am extremely excited about is uh, None of the Above by Travis Alabanza um, with a a U.S. introduction by Alok Vade Menon. It's a book about, um, it's a sort of like part memoir, part manifesto about gender identity beyond the binary and how rigid enforcement of the gender binary harms everyone, trans, cis, and uh, everyone beyond. That it just sort of limits possibilities for authentic human expression and um and creates fear and judgment where none needs to be. Uh, I think Travis is thinking and writing in ways that I haven't seen anywhere else. I'm so excited to bring this book to the U.S. in the fall. Sounds amazing. Um, I look forward to reading it. Thanks. Um, Can I tell you one more project that yes, is absolutely. just getting started? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm working with a, an old friend of mine and a uh, a uh, former Kickstarter creator at the time at her named Tanika Stotts. Uh, she and I are publishing, uh, editing an anthology of um, stories by queer and trans writers writing about Rocky Horror. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be publishing this uh, in time for the 50th anniversary of the film's release in two years. So we've got an open call for submissions that's listed on the Feminist Press website. Um, and the book is called Absolute Pleasure, Five Messy Decades, uh, Queer Writers on Five Messy Decades of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, so fun. <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, Margo, thank you so much for your time and for your thoughtful answers to my questions. Um, good luck. Thank um, you. Forward, and I'm really excited to, to dig into these titles that you've mentioned. Um, uh, we really appreciate it. And I hope it's not the last time we'll get to talk. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for reaching out and giving me an opportunity to, to think about these questions and uh, talk about them with you.